Well, it's great to be back with you all this morning. Now, as I was studying this passage this week, we're in Philippians chapter 1. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, Philippians chapter 1. I'd say that the big thing that I learned this week from this passage is that our prayers reveal our theology. Our prayers reveal what we believe and what we value most in life. I'd like to give you a case in point. Did you happen to catch the inauguration this week? Did you see that they invited Rick Warren to offer a prayer at the beginning of President Obama's inauguration? Yes, it was awesome. Now, um, you know, I don't think there's any way that they'd invite him to preach a sermon at the inauguration. You have that whole separation of church and state thing, but that's okay. Because in front of hundreds of millions of people watching TV, here's what Rick prayed. Almighty God, our Father, everything we see and everything we can't see exists because of you alone. It all comes from you. It all belongs to you. It all exists for your glory. The scripture tells us, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you are the compassionate and merciful one. And you are loving to everyone you have made. And then towards the end of his prayer. I humbly ask this in the name of the one who changed my life, Yeshua, Isa, Jesus, who taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. In that prayer, Rick taught that there is only one God, and he is almighty, and he is creator, and all of creation belongs to him, and he is worthy of all glory. And he is our father, and he is loving to all people whom he has made. He forgives us of our sins, and most importantly, he changes our lives through a man named Jesus, whom is revealed in the Gospels. Yeah, Rick didn't have to preach a sermon. He taught theology. He taught the core truths of the Christian faith to hundreds of millions of people. That's why I'm so excited that they had him come pray. Because he prayed the gospel. He prayed theology. Because our prayers reveal our theology. I saw that truth at work in the life of the man from whom I learned more about prayer than anyone else. Dick Davison. Dick was an elder here for decades at Grace Bible Church. He passed away not long ago. If you ever had the privilege of listening to Dick pray, you heard his theology at work, didn't you? Every time that Dick prayed, you heard about the greatness of God. You heard about our need for a Savior. You heard about the importance of the gospel. And you heard about the value of college ministry and world missions. Dick couldn't help but pray theology. Our prayers reveal our theology. They reveal what we believe and what we value most in life. And we'll see that at work in the passage this morning. We're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 this morning. This is actually the first half of Paul's prayer for the Philippians. As he does in most letters, he begins with a prayer for his audience. So he's going to pray for them. I want you to look with me starting in verse 3. We're going, to, we're going to study this prayer, the first half of it, in detail this morning. And then we're going to step back and we're going to ask, what theology does Paul teach us? What does Paul reveal about his beliefs and about his values through this prayer? So look with me starting in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this is, like we said, the first half of Paul's prayer. In this portion of the prayer, the key idea, the big idea here is the word thank. The verb thank. That's actually the only main verb in the whole passage. Paul is thanking God for the Philippians. That's the big idea here. Next week, as we look at verses 9 through 11, we will see Paul turn to petition. He'll ask God to do things in behalf of the Philippians. But right now, it's all thanks. All thank you, God, for the Philippians. And verses 3 through 4, they kind of talk about or reveal that thankfulness. But if you read it with me in English, you may notice verses 3 through 4 are a little hard to read and, and figure out. There's a lot of repetition there. It's really awkward grammar. As awkward as it is in English, it's actually worse in Greek. It's just all repeating over and over again. So I, I studied it. I tried to work on it and, and come up with kind of an interpretive translation to kind of smooth it out for you. Here's what Paul is saying. I thank my God every time I think of you, always praying with joy every time I pray for you all. There's still a lot of repetitiveness there. All, 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 every time for you all. He's repeating himself to drive home two points here. Point number one, we should notice the constancy of Paul's prayer. Paul is always praying for them. Every time, all the time, he's praying for them. Now, this isn't talking about 24-7 prayer. Paul's not on his knees 24-7. He's got to eat. He's got to sleep. He's got to do ministry. The idea here is that as Paul goes through his day, every time he thinks of the Philippians, he turns and prays for them. He turns to God in prayer. This is revealing something about the quality of Paul's prayer life. He's not a quiet time kind of Christian. You know, 15 minutes in the morning, pray, and then go about your day. No, I think Paul had quiet times, but I think all the way through the day, whenever some need came to Paul's mind, he immediately prayed. He was just always about the business of prayer. And so every time he thinks of the Philippians, he turns to God in prayer. But notice, second thing to note here, every time he prayed, it was always out of an attitude of joy. Every time the Philippians came to Paul's mind, he turned to God in in prayer of joy. He was so joyful for these believers. Paul did not view it as a burden to pray for the Philippians. I confess that's very convicting to me. Sometimes I view prayer as a burden. Okay, I need to stop. And for Paul, every time he prayed, it was out of joy. He didn't have to try to be thankful for these believers. He just was overwhelmingly grateful to God for them. Now, why is that? Why is Paul so thankful for these believers in Philippi? Well, that's what he answers in the rest of the verses. Verses 5 through 8 gives us three reasons why Paul is so profoundly thankful for the Philippians. So I want to look at those. We're going to start in verse 5. We're going to look at these three reasons why Paul is so thankful. We'll start uh, with a reason from their past, a reason from their past in verse 5. In view of, or, or better, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the key word in that verse is the word participation. Uh, it's a translation of the Greek word koinonia, which many of you may have heard that word before. We usually uh, see it translated as fellowship. Now, what do you think of when you hear the English word fellowship? If you're like me and you grew up in a church, you typically think of like potluck suppers, gathering together around food. Maybe you think of what we're going to do here in a few minutes, go out in the foyer for a coffee social, hanging out, drinking something together. That's fellowship to us. 
But biblical fellowship is actually much deeper than that. Biblical koinonia is much deeper. Uh, A great scholar of the New Testament named D.A. Carson studied this word koinonia extensively, and I want to read you what he concluded. In the first century, the word commonly had commercial overtones. If John and Harry buy a boat and start a fishing business, they have entered into a fellowship, a partnership. Interestingly, even in the New Testament, the word is often tied to financial matters. Thus, when the Macedonian Christians send money to help poor Christians in Jerusalem, they are entering into fellowship with them. The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. In other words, when, when you think about the word fellowship as it's used in the Bible, koinonia, it's not just about hanging out. It's not just about having fun together. It's about sacrificially uniting together around a common mission. It's actually, that, that is the old use of the word fellowship in English. Uh, J.R. Tolkien used it that way in his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. What's the title of the first book? The Fellowship of the Ring. What did it mean to be part of the Fellowship of the Ring? Well, you've got a whole cast of characters, uh, some men, uh, wizards, some hobbits, uh, an elf, a dwarf. They are all bound together. What unites them? Well, it's not common background. It's not common hobbies. Uh, it's not common interests. It's not common race. It's not even common species. What binds them together? A common mission. Their sacrificial commitment to that common mission. That's biblical fellowship. That's what Paul has in mind here. That's why it's translated partnership uh, or participation in different Bibles. That's the right idea. They are partnering with Paul. What Paul means by that is partnership in the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of advancing the gospel. He's talking about sharing the gospel. And the Philippians had proven very faithful in that partnership. They had, let's see, they had prayed for Paul regularly. They had given to Paul regularly to his mission to advance the gospel. Not only that, but they had shared the gospel themselves. Paul will talk about that. How they have been lights for Christ in the city of Philippi. So the Philippians had proven faithful in the past as partners in the ministry or advance of the gospel. And that's the first reason Paul is so thankful for them. Because of their past partnership in the gospel. Second reason is in verse 6 and it looks at the future. Look with me again at verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's actually a little bit of a challenging verse to understand. Uh, It's pretty clear that what we have here is a promise. Paul is confident that God is doing something in them. He is completing some good work that began in the past and will be perfected in the future. That's easy to see. The question is, what is the good work? What is this good work that Paul has in mind? There's two options. Uh, First option is that the good work is their salvation. Okay, there's sanctification. God is at work in them, completing or perfecting their salvation that began with the gospel and continues with God making them more like Jesus Christ. Well, that is theologically true. And in fact, that will be a major theme in Philippians chapters 2 and 3, that God is at work in them, completing their salvation. But I don't know that that's the best fit in our passage. Because in the previous verse, and actually in the next verse, verse 7, Paul will focus on the idea of their partnership in the gospel. And that's why I like the second option better. I think this good work is the worldwide advance of the gospel. I think this good work is the spreading of the gospel through these believers in Philippi. It began among them when they accepted the gospel. And God is continuing it both in Philippi through their witness and throughout the world through Paul's work. What we have in here is a promise. God is thankful for the Philippians because he knows 
that God will continue to complete, to move forward, to perfect this ministry of the gospel that began among them. God will reach the world through these believers. I think that's the point that Paul has in mind here in the second uh, reason that he's thankful for them. Because in the future, he knows that God will complete this ministry that began among them. Third reason is found in verse 7 and 8, and it has something to do with the present, why Paul is thankful for them in the present. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, we tend to think of Paul as, as a really theological guy, a guy with a really big brain who thinks logically. He's always thinking analytically about things, and that's true. Paul was very theological. But typically, when we think of guys like that, we don't think of them being emotional, do we? We, we tend to contrast reason and emotions as if you can't have both rationality and emotions at the same time, and yet Paul breaks that stereotype. Because let me tell you, in this book, he is deeply theological. And yet, at the same time, as he thinks about the Philippians, he is also intensely emotional. He loves them deeply. He loves them so much, he says, I have you in my heart. I have deep affection for you inside of me. I love you so much that I'm going to take an oath out before God as God is my witness. I love you with Christ-like affection, with the same love that Christ has for you. I think what Paul is telling us is the reason he's so thankful for them is because he loves them so much. The more he loves them, the more thankful he is for them. I see that, that principle true in my own life. Who am I most thankful for? Well, the, the, the woman that I love more than, than any of you, Julie. I'm most thankful for her. Now, sure, on sinful days when I'm selfish, when I'm prideful, I tend to get distracted in my thankfulness and take her for granted. But when I'm walking with the Lord, it naturally comes out that I'm thankful for her because I love her. That's how it works. The more you love someone, the more thankful you should be for them. And that's proven true in Paul's life. Now, why is he so in love with the Philippian believers? Well, verse 7, again, because of their partnership. Because they've shared with Paul in the ups and downs of life. Notice that Paul, they've shared in the lows when Paul is in prison, when things aren't going well. They've shared in the highs when Paul is out uh, affirming and, con- and confirming and defending the gospel. When ministry is going well, they've been with him there. They've been with him in the ups and downs of life. Because of that, he loves them deeply. Okay, so the, really what we have in, in this prayer is three reasons why Paul is so deeply thankful for the Philippians. He's thankful for them. He's joyful for them every time he thinks about them because in the past they have partnered with him faithfully in the ministry, the advance of the gospel because in the future he knows that God will take their efforts and perfect them, lead them to success in taking the gospel throughout the world and because in the present he just can't help but feel thankful for them because he loves them so much because they've shared in the ups and downs of his life. That's what you have in your passage this morning. That's what's going on in this prayer. Now let's step back for a minute. Let's do what we did with Rick Warren's prayer. Let's step back. Let's ask, what do we learn? What theology does Paul teach us in this prayer? Now let's go back and and remember the big idea of the book of Philippians. Remember the big idea of the book of Philippians is our heavenly citizenship. The whole book of Philippians is teaching us how do we be good citizens of heaven while on earth. Okay. And last week when we say the first two verses, what did we learn? Well, our new citizenship in heaven brought a new identity. We are saints in Christ Jesus. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. We are servant leaders for Christ Jesus. 
This week, I think what Paul is teaching us in this prayer, through these frequent references to their partnership in the gospel, is that guess what? Our heavenly citizenship has also brought a new occupation. A new occupation. Heavenly citizens, all of us, are here to advance the gospel worldwide, to to move the gospel forward, not just in Bryan College Station, but around the world. That is your occupation. Regardless of what your job is, some of you are students, some are teachers, some are engineers. You guys have all kinds of jobs. That's, that's irrelevant to this. All of you, regardless of your job, have one occupation. You are here on earth to advance the gospel, to move the gospel forward in Bryan College Station and around the world. That's not a surprise to us. We can remember Jesus' last words in the book of Matthew and the Great Commission. He tells his disciples what? My marching orders for you are go and make disciples of all nations. That's Jesus' mission for us. That's our occupation on earth. The New Testament tells us that we do this in a number of ways. Specifically, we, we pray for those who are sharing the gospel locally and globally. We give to those who are sharing the gospel. We share the gospel ourselves and our family, uh, with our friends at work. And when we can't share the gospel, we plant seeds. We serve and love those who don't yet know Jesus so that their hearts will be open so that in the future we can share the gospel. So as citizens of heaven, the first thing Paul wants us to know in this prayer is we all have the same occupation on earth. We are all called to advance the gospel, to move the gospel forward in our own world and around the world, here locally and globally. That's what we're called to do on earth. But Paul, as he usually is, is not content just to tell us what to do. He gives us motivation. He gives us two big reasons in this passage why we should devote our lives to this pursuit. Why devote your life to spreading the gospel here in Bryan College Station and around the world? It gives you two reasons. First reason that Paul gives is because as you dedicate your life to advancing the gospel, it will bind you together with other believers in supernatural unity. Remember, what, what is it that united Paul with the believers in Philippi? What is it that built such affection in Paul for them? Was it that they happened to have similar personalities? Was it that they had similar hobbies? Was it that the Philippians made Paul laugh? Well, all of those could be true, but none of those are the basis of his love for them. What is the basis? Their common mission. That they were all united in the mission of advancing the gospel. That's what united them together. What Paul is teaching us is, you know, I think all of us want deep relationships with one another. All of us want to know what it feels to really love someone and be loved. Uh, to really care about someone, to have a deep, lasting, abiding friendship. Paul's telling you, guess how you get that? Guess how you have true biblical community? You get it through mission. Community doesn't come first. Mission comes first. As you sacrificially unite with one another to advance the gospel on earth, your hearts will be bound together. You will be joined to other believers in your family, with your group of friends, in your small group, in your church. If you want to know what true relationships are, you got to unite around that common mission. I saw that in my own life and my friendship with Trey Corey. Uh, He's our college pastor here at the church. Trey and I have been friends for years. We have a very strong friendship. Trey and I share a lot of things in common. Uh, We both love playing we. We both enjoy talking about theology. We have a lot of common interests. Uh, Trey and I, our personalities mesh really well. Uh, Trey makes me laugh all the time. Uh, But none of those things are the basis for my friendship with Trey. Basis for my affection for Trey was set nine years ago when he and I co-led a trip here from Grace Bible Church to go overseas to Central Asia. 
We led a bunch of students from A&M over there to share the gospel with Muslim students in Central Asia for seven weeks. He and I co-led that team. We sacrificed. We didn't sleep a lot. It was stressful. It was hard. But we did that together to lead those students as they shared the gospel. That's what bound Trey and I together. That trip is the foundation of our friendship. We still talk about it today. And even more than that, when I see Trey, I see him through that trip. I trust Trey implicitly because of that trip. Because we partnered together in the mission to advance the gospel. That is the basis of true relationships. Everybody wants community. You get community through mission. As you partner together to advance the gospel, your hearts will be welded together. So I want to give you a a few practical um, tips that you can use this week to put this into practice. A few things that you can do in any group of believers that you want to build true community with, in, in your family, with your group of believing friends, in your small group, in your church community. Here's a few specific things that you can do this week. Uh, number one, I encourage you to begin to pray for a missionary or, or someone in ministry regularly. Okay, Start it this week and then continue it all year. Uh, if you want to find a, a missionary to pray for, I encourage you to call the church office and ask for Belle Roberts. She can give you uh, information about some of our missionaries so you'll know who to pray for and what specific needs to pray for. So choose maybe one or two missionaries that you are going to pray for continually throughout this semester. Okay, that's the first thing that you can do to integrate this mission into your relationships is pray together for a missionary or a ministry. Second, uh, you can give. You can give to a missionary or to a ministry. Uh, this certainly does include financial support, but even more than that, you know, one of the things that missionaries most want is just to know that people remember them. Maybe send them a letter. Maybe send them a, an email. You can do this with your family. Get your kids around. You know what would be really fun? Grab your kids and put together a care package for a missionary to send them. Something from home to, to let them know that people care about them. That's the second thing you can do. Third thing, serve in the community. Find some way to serve in the community of Bryan College Station so that you can plant seeds for the gospel. Now, that may be something as simple as gathering together with your family or with your small group and mowing the lawns of neighbors who are are older or maybe who are gone on vacation. That's a real simple one. Or maybe more community-wide, you could partner, you could go out and serve in some community outreach ministry here like uh, the Brazos Food Bank or Twin Cities Mission. Get your small group and your family together and go out there and serve. Number four, invite your neighbors to dinner. Man, I think one of the coolest things that I've seen before, my parents do this at their church in Round Rock. They gather together with their home church ministry and they invite their neighbors to dinner. As a small group, instead of just always getting together as a small group and hanging out, they intentionally, once every six weeks or a couple months, they'll invite friends or neighbors from around to come join them for dinner and begin to build relationships with them so they can share the gospel. Now, the cool thing about that is it binds the hearts together of everybody in that home church because they're working together to reach their neighborhood for Christ. Another thing that I've heard that's really cool is small groups taking ownership of their street or their neighborhood. Okay, so a small group, people who are kind of living in the same area, maybe you with some of your believing neighbors who go here to church, you commit in 2009, we're going to own our street. In 2009, we're going to pray for every house on this street. We're going to meet every neighbor, and as best as we can, we're going to share the gospel with them. If all of us did that and sponsored like all the streets, do you know how many people would hear the gospel in 2009? It would be awesome. That's how you reach the community. You partner together to share the gospel. Okay, so the first reason that Paul tells us 
that we should devote ourselves to the advance of the gospels because that's where true community is found. That's how you bind your hearts together with other believers. The second reason that Paul gives us or teaches us in this prayer is you devote yourself to the advance of the gospel because it will succeed. I want to read you a line that came towards the end of President Obama's inauguration speech. Towards the end of his speech, here's what he said. This is the price and the promise of citizenship. This is the source of our confidence, the knowledge that God calls on us to shape an uncertain destiny. Now, those are very moving words. He is a very gifted orator. But in those words, he reveals the inherent limitation of every human endeavor towards an uncertain destiny. People are working incredibly hard and spending billions of dollars on this bailout plan. And and troops are are spending their blood on our national defense. And people are spending sweat on social change. And at the end of the day, no one knows if it will work. There are opinions on both sides of the fence for everything that our government does. But at the end of the day, no one knows if it will work. We live in an, an uncertain world. For you students, will your hard work at school pay off with a great job when you graduate? Or will all the good jobs be gone? Will all your hard work, your overtime at your job pay off? Will it be rewarded? Are you getting the pink slip next week? All the money that you've saved in your retirement account, will that give you a secure future? Or will it all be lost in the turmoil of Wall Street? We don't know. We don't know because we live in an uncertain time. And that is the beauty of verse 6. That is the great news of verse 6, because in the midst of an uncertain world where I can't count on anything, oh, there is one thing I can count on. One task that I can give my life to and know that it will work. When we dedicate ourselves to the advance of the gospel, guess what? We are not working towards an uncertain destiny. We are working towards a certain guaranteed glorious destiny because we know it will work. We know that God will reach this world with the gospel. We know that it will work not because of our effort or our skill, but because of our God. Psalm 135, 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in all the seas and in all the deeps. We work for an all-powerful boss. When we give ourselves to this task of spreading the gospel in Bryan College Station and around the world, you're working for a boss who is Lord of Lords, who is sovereign over all things, who is almighty, who will accomplish everything he desires through you. When you give yourself to this task, you are on the winning team. You know that your efforts will succeed. Now, let me clarify. That doesn't mean that every person we share the gospel with will believe. God is still sovereign. Humans are still responsible. We don't know what will happen with any particular person. But what we do know is from the book of Revelation At the end of time, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation praising God because God will succeed. He will reach the entire world for Jesus Christ, and he'll do that through us. So in the midst of my life, when I don't know if so many things about my life are going to work out, I do know that every minute, every effort, every sacrifice that I put into the task of sharing the gospel here in Bryan College Station and around the world, I know that it won't be wasted. I know that God and his omnipotence will take my effort and he will perfect it. He will bring it to success. My efforts towards this occupation will count for eternity. That is a great reason to be involved in this. This is the one thing I can absolutely count on. One task I know will succeed. 
So Paul is challenging us this morning as, as citizens of heaven to devote our lives to the advance of the gospel here in Bryan College Station and around the world. Do it because that's what will bind you together with other believers in true biblical community. And do it because that's the one thing you can do with your life that you know will work. So let me give you again some specific things to think about this week, some specific application to put in practice. As a family or a group, I want you to to choose at least one of these ideas that you're not practicing yet. Number one, pray. If, If you're not praying for a missionary or minister regularly, choose to do that this week and throughout this semester. Two, give. Not just money, but letters of encouragement. Number three, Go out there and share the gospel. Find ways to share the gospel in your neighborhood, at work, with your friends, in your community. And finally, when you can't share the gospel, plant seeds through service to those who don't yet know Jesus. By inviting those who don't yet know Jesus into your home to serve them dinner, to love them, to build relationships with them. Choose one of these ideas this week to begin to practice. Now here at the end of our service, we have a great privilege this morning. We believe that all of life is founded on the gospel, that the gospel is what builds our relationships, not just with God, but with one another, that, the, that spreading the gospel is a great task that our lives are dedicated to. And this morning, we have the privilege of celebrating the gospel in communion. In a moment here, as the elements pass, as we celebrate communion, we're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us. Communion is a, a remembrance, a memorial that Jesus came to earth and died as a sacrifice for our sins and rose from the dead. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate that. What I'm going to ask you guys to do right now is to take a couple minutes in prayer. I want you to pray for two things. Number one, learning from Paul, I want us to pray in thanks. Spend some time prayerfully thanking God for sending Jesus Christ. Thank God that the gospel exists, that there is a way out of hell. Thank God that he sent Jesus to die for your sins and rise from the dead. That's number one, spend some time in thanks. Number two, spend some time rededicating yourself to this task of evangelism, to this task of world missions. Rededicate yourself to advancing the gospel. Now, that may mean spending a little bit of time in in confession, confessing God for sins that have kept you back, maybe fear or selfishness that have kept you from dedicating your life to the spread of the gospel. Spend some time confessing that and spend some time asking God to give you boldness, to give you confidence and faithfulness to go out there and share the gospel and partner with those who are. So please take the next couple minutes as Ross plays for us just to spend some time in prayer thanking God for the gospel and rededicating yourself to advancing the gospel here on earth. teaches us in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Lord, I know that all of us take that for granted on a daily basis. We would have no hope without Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, without the good news that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. Father, I pray for your help not to take that for granted. I pray for your help to be truly grateful for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that this morning as we celebrate that, that you have saved us, that you've drawn us to yourself through your son and given us hope in this life and in the next life. Help us to be lights, to go out and share that hope with the world. I pray, Father, please help all of us to devote our lives to the advance of your gospel, to devote our lives to sharing the gospel here in Bryan College Station and around the world, Lord, because we know that's the one task that really counts. And we know that you will take our efforts and that you will make them succeed. We thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to work for and with you. You are so great, so great to us, so good to us. We are so grateful. Thank you for your son in whose name we pray. Amen.